Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome, everybody, um, to the Skylight Podcast. My name is Agnes. I work at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. We are a neighborhood bookstore. We've been around, at this point, just over 24 years. We just had our anniversary. Um, And I'm very excited about this conversation today. We've got a really incredible gathering of people um, to hear a little bit from the book, The Accident of Color, A Story of Race and Reconstruction by Daniel Brook, and then to talk a little bit The Accident of Color is a technicolor history of the first civil rights movement and its collapse into black and white. Brutal slavery existed all over the new world, but only America followed emancipation with a twisted system of segregation. The Accident of Color asks why. Um, So today we have with us Daniel himself. Daniel Brooke is a journalist and author whose writing has appeared in Harper's, the New York Times Magazine, The Nation, Slate, and the Pacific Standard. His previous book, A History of Future Cities, was long listed for the Lionel Gelber Prize and selected as one of the 10 best books of the year by the Washington Post. Brooks' research and writing have been supported by fellowships from institutions, including the Library of Congress and Tulane University's New Orleans Center for the Gulf South. Born in Brooklyn to parents with, with, roots both north in both root, with roots in both North and South, he was raised on Long Island, educated at Yale, and lives in New Orleans today. Um, also joining us today is Roger Genver-Smith, um, Mr. Smith adapted his Obie award-winning solo performance of a Huey P. Newton story into a Peabody award-winning telefilm. His Bessie award-winning Rodney King is currently streaming on Netflix. Um, also among his work for the international stage are studies of Frederick Douglass and Christopher Columbus, Bob Marley and Jimi Hendrix, iconoclast artists Jean-Michel Basquiat, Simon Rodia and Charles White, and baseball greats Juan Marichal and John, uh, John Roseboro. With Mark Broyard, he created and continues to perform inside the Creole Mafia, a not-too-dark comedy. I also recognize him from countless films and television shows. He studied at Yale University and Occidental College and has taught at both institutions as well as CalArts, where he directs his performing history workshop. Uh, He's a first-generation Californian with roots in both New Orleans and Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and the delight only continues, I'm very excited to say, we also have with us today, Aaron Aubrey Kaplan. Um, Aaron Aubrey Kaplan is a Los Angeles journalist and columnist who has written about African-American political, economic, and cultural issues since 1992. She is a contributing writer to the New York Times opinion pages and also the Los Angeles Times, where from 2005 to 2007, she was a weekly op-ed columnist, the first, the first black weekly op-ed columnist in the paper's history. 
For nine years, she was a staff writer and columnist for the LA Weekly and a regular contributor for many publications, including KCET.com, Salon.com, Essence, and This Magazine, where she is currently serving as the book review editor. Erin's essays have been widely anthologized and she won the Penn USA 2001 Award for Journalism. Her books include Black Talk, Blue Thoughts, and Walking the Color Line, Dispatches from a Black Journalista, and I Heart Obama. She holds an MFA from University of California, Los Angeles, and has taught creative writing in the MFA and undergraduate programs at Antioch University, Los Angeles. She was born and raised in Los Angeles, though her family is originally from New Orleans. Uh, and with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Roger to hear um, a passage from the book. Well, on March 12, 1864, a pair of uh, son and gentlemen uh, e. Arnold Verdino and Jean-Baptiste Rudinez arrived at the White House to lobby President Abraham Lincoln. They hailed from New Orleans, a city that had been retaken by the Union just one year into the Civil War and had become a testing ground for what the uh, multiracial nation might look like when the war was won. The visitors were leaders of the city's distinct openly mixed race Afro-French community. And they presented the president with a petition signed by 1,000 of the fellow property owning free men of color demanding the right to vote. At the time, this was an audacious ask. Though the petitioners addressed the president as citizens of the United States, technically this was no longer true. Seven years before their visit to the White House, the nation's highest court had revoked their citizenship in the Dred Scott case, a dispute ostensibly over slaves' rights. The Supreme Court of the United States had declared that an African American, whether enslaved or free, had, quote, no rights which the white man was bound to respect and is not a citizen within the meaning of the Constitution of the United States, end quote. According to the Supreme Court, the petitioners had no rights that Lincoln was bound to respect, but they were hardly his inferiors. Now Lincoln, you see, he had been born in a log cabin in Kentucky and though whip smart, he had completed just a single year of formal schooling. By contrast, Rudinez was a trained engineer. Bertineau, for his part, made his living as a wine merchant, that most refined of professions. In aristocratic fashion, this son of a French father and an Afro-Cuban mother went by his middle name. Lincoln was so low-born that he didn't even have one. While the wine merchant kept tabs on the Paris auction house prices of the latest Slav Valley vintages, the rail splitter commander in chief's entire international experience amounted to visiting the Ontario side of Niagara Falls once. In fact, it was Lincoln's youthful trips down the Mississippi River to New Orleans, especially his month-long sojourn there in 1831 that constituted the deepest cosmopolitan immersion of his life. For Lincoln, 
The meeting with Berdino and Rudinez might well have felt like a visit from foreign dignitaries, if not interplanetary ambassadors. But the strangest thing of all about these visitors was their racial identity. Though these men were light enough to pass for white, Rudinez was just one-eighth African. Bertineau, with his rakish wave of dark hair, looked like a stereotypical Frenchman. They clearly had no interest in doing so. Bertineau and Rudinez were of partial African descent and they were completely unabashed about it, willing to go to the White House as community representatives of African Americans in their state. They did not feel that their African heritage made them any less American than their French heritage did. Lincoln, in contrast, with his dark features and anomalous height, it spent his entire political career dodging scurrilous rumors that he secretly had African ancestors. Touch of the tar brush. Well, I've made many decisions in my professional life, but asking Roger to read that <laughs> passage is probably the best one I've ever made. Thank you so much. I agree. Thank you for sharing it, Daniel. Thank you. Wonderful passage and a great introduction to a great piece of work. Thank you uh, for sharing it with us. And so lovely to be in the middle of such distinguished uh, writers, Aaron and Daniel. My pleasure and thank you Skylight for hosting us. I concur. Oh, is that me? <laughs> Sorry. I was so I was so riveted by Roger's performance. That was wonderful. I think we're all a little uh, <laughs> I read that passage, but I did not hear it like that. And that was wonderful. So thank you, Roger. Thank you, Dan, for getting in touch for and for writing this book. It is marvelous. Um, and it's so interested in the issue of color um, in a really kind of existential way. And it's just fascinating and, and really makes me see myself differently. So thank you for that. Thank you to Skylights for host for hosting this um, and for putting this out there. Um, and I really hope people, Americans of all skin shades, read this book um, because it's so it says so much about everybody. <laughs> so, so thank you, and I'm so excited to be here and to talk about this book. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, the um, passage Roger read is from the very uh, beginning of the book. Um, and the book ends uh, 
with a, a brief passage I'd like to read, uh, sort of brings it all around. It says, after losing the Plessy versus Ferguson case at the Supreme Court, the Comité des Citoyens, which brought the case from New Orleans, issued the statement, quote, notwithstanding this decision, we still believe that we were right. What they believed they were right about was not merely that separate could never be equal, but that in America, separate was not even possible. As New World people, we were too mixed up to sort back out. Say what we may, Americans would never be black or white. We are mestizos, creoles, misfits all. And that is, that is ultimately the argument of the book, that it takes this story about two communities, one in New Orleans, one in Charleston, that, that are bravely, openly of mixed race, and makes the argument that as, as, as unique as these two communities seem, what's unique about them is only their openness about their background, not their actual background. Um, and that, that this, this background is, is pretty much universal to Americans uh, and our inability to openly admit that and face that uh, is, is at the root of, of so many of our social problems. Right, right. I was, I was thinking as Roger was reading and I laughed when he ended with, you know, you know, touch of the tar brush. I've heard that before. I, it, I mean, it brings on the idea that, you know, color was, it, it, uh, Africanness was a source of shame and degradation. Secrecy, you had to keep it secret. And so the openness of the um, mestizos, the, the, the brown people, the, the Afro-Creoles, the openness was what confused, you know, kind of was kind of radical in the, you know, in Reconstruction and after the Civil War. Um, you could be black, but not, not. I, I, I you had to be black, but visibly black. And if you had black, but you could pass, you were supposed to pass. You were not supposed to claim blackness. And these people claimed it because they'd always claimed it. And it's just really kind of, just really tragic and poignant that their kind of, they, their way of life, the way they saw themselves was just completely rejected and recast as unacceptable as black. And unfortunately at that point, black became the side you did not want to be on ever. It became the back of the streetcar, it became the it became the bottom of the caste system, and it's still to this day still there. So uh, it's just really tragic that we missed our moment. <laughs> America missed its moment, um, but not you know not for want of trying on the part of these folks. And yeah, and this and the the book traces these remarkable civil rights moments of progress uh, during Reconstruction, including desegregating the New Orleans public schools, desegregating the streetcar system in Charleston. Uh, and again and again, the openly mixed race community that, that is, is providing a disproportionate number of the leaders of this movement is turning it around and saying, you know, to all of the ostensibly white, ostensible elites, you're no different than us. We're just open about our background and y'all are covering it up. Right. And again and again, they, they have this kind of ace up their sleeve where they say, well, if you are gonna segregate the streetcars, we're gonna come out with our knowledge of who's actually, you know, one eighth, one sixteenth, one sixty fourth of yeah. African descent. 
Um, and, and that we've lost sight of that, you know, that when you come back to the civil rights movement of the 1960s, the racial binary is so deeply entrenched that, that is, that's lost. So sometimes I think of like an almost bizarro kind of like Afrofuturist Brown versus Board of Education, where the claim on the part of the anti-segregation forces is that the school in Topeka, Kansas, that's ostensibly all quote unquote colored uh, is to a, a boy or girl filled with students of, of European descent, which un undoubtedly it was, undoubtedly right. it was. Right, right. Well, you know, race has made idiots of everybody, but um, you know, all those people who were calling them out, calling out, calling out really the concept of race and, and, and a color line, they would also say, oh, by the way, you know, you're my father, you're, you're my, you know, we related, we're actually related. And it's so interesting to learn in your book that Justice John Harlan, who I knew was a dissenter, the lone dissenter in the, that, that um, culminating case, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, uh, had a black brother, right? Or he had, he had a brother or half brother. Half brother, brother yeah. And, yeah. To, you know, and he, and he gave him pause. And he said, this is family. We are, you know, it, it, it um, uh, influenced his uh, perspective as it should have, but for a lot of other Americans or white Americans with the similar relationships, they just, what's so tragic is that they just saw those relations, they, they didn't see it as a relationship. They simply saw the black, the blackness came first and the blackness was degradation and that had to go on the other side. And so it was still very much um, in the legacy of slavery, just putting, you know, like putting your property over there and not considering it human, part of yourself. Yeah, Roger, do you, do you mind telling that uh, little vignette about when yeah. you're in Charleston and you're going to the, your ancestors' cemeteries and, and how that goes down? Well, you know, I'm connected to Charleston through this beautiful woman here who is my late mother, Helen Genver Smith. And um, my mom grew up in Charleston, um, many generations of Charlestonians uh, named Genver who are now buried in Charleston in two separate uh, graveyards. Mm -hmm. um, one at St. Mary's on uh, downtown um, and all of those gravestones are in French. And then uh, further uptown in the Friendly Union uh, Cemetery, uh, all of those gravestones are in English, but they are the same people divided by the color line, even in death. So when I visit my ancestors in Charleston, I have to make two separate uh, cemetery moves. Um, mm. My mom, obviously a very fair-skinned uh, woman who was discriminated against uh, just as the blackest black person was in Charleston. In fact, um, our family home was right across the street from the College of Charleston and our family was not, of course, uh, admitted to uh, study there. And of course, was not even welcome on the campus, which was just across the street from our family home. My mom went to study uh, in New Orleans at Xavier University. And it is there that she became reconnected with the community uh, with which we were connected in the 1700s, the community 
that fled the Haitian Revolution and came to uh, mainland America. Many of those people came, of course, but some people came to Charleston as well. And then when my mom came out to California uh, post-war, having completed her education, uh, she became united, of course, with the great migration of people who came from New Orleans, like Aaron's family, um, during the great gumbo famine of 1950. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you would go into, you know, the church hall in, at Holy Name or Transfiguration. It would sound like the seventh board. It would smell like the seventh board. And um, Aaron has, has written very beautifully about this generation of people, which of course included her late father, Larry Aubrey, who was a fantastic uh, community activist and um, extraordinary writer as well. She, she gets it honest. Oh, thank you, Roger. Well, yeah, I forgot about the Great Gumbo Famine, uh, <laughs> otherwise known as the something, the, the, the Dust Bowl. But no, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, well, um, were you born in, in Charleston, Raj? You were born here. I was, right? I was born in California, first okay, generation. Yeah, first generation. Me, me too. And, and uh, thank you for mentioning the Seventh Ward. I grew up hearing all about the Seventh Ward. The Seventh Ward basically transplanted itself to Los Angeles. But I, it took me a long time to understand the Seventh Ward was where all, all the Creoles lived in the Seventh Ward. So even though we had this binary of black and white in New Orleans, they still maintained that, I guess you call it uh, kind of their own life, their own sort of bubble, not, not legally, but, but culturally. And so um, I grew up with a lot of stories about that bubble. They were poor, they didn't have a lot of advantages, but they had the sense about themselves that they were uh, different and I always thought that meant elitist like you know they saw they saw themselves as different from from other African Americans and and they were I mean historically there was a difference but my father and many other people in the family were were um, staunch activists because they understood they almost they st understood that history of of Creole people or mixed race people agitating for everybody else but they still, you know, they came to LA because the South was the South and the binary was the binary. You know, my 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 uh, mother, who was very fair, like your mother, would sort of rebel by going into white white establishments, passing as white. Um, my uncles did the same thing. My my um, my grandfather refused to ride the streetcar at all. But even when you were passing, because the binary forced you to pass. You were always in fear of being found out. You know, if somebody outed you and and told the world where you were black, there were big consequences to pay. So there was a particular kind of terror for these mi mixed race people who no longer had a place in America, but they still they had a culture, they had a togetherness, they had a sense of history, but they didn't know what they didn't know. There's nowhere to put it. There was nowhere to really live it. So they said, "Screw it." So they came to L.A., where you know. You can just kind of, uh, um, in theory, be who you are and not be bothered with anybody. That didn't exactly happen. No, so, not exactly. But it was, you know, it promised some kind of reinvention. And yeah. but it always struck me as interesting this great migration out of the South to other cities. It was American people looking for America, looking for looking for a place that would accept them, as you know, uh, as part of that search 
that Daniel's book is about the search for equality, you know, we're still, we're still making, doing that journey, even though we, the migration is over, but the journey's not over, right? There's a, there's a tension throughout the history of the book that, that these communities are facing, which I think faces any kind of middle-class community of sort of where do your allegiances lie and how, how to sort of navigate this minefield of, you know, the cozy up to the elite, make common cause with the masses. Um, and it's, it's a, as Aaron said in an email to me, you know, they, they kind of made, they made the right choice, but they also had, had no choice. Um, right. This community is, has, kind of has greatness. These communities have greatness thrust upon them when, when it becomes clear that, you know, they're either, either all Americans are going to be equal or they're going to be in this subordinate caste. Um, and it is to their credit that they just never give up. I mean, we think of reconstruction as ending in 18, with the 1876 disputed election, which all of a sudden everyone is reading up on again. Um, yep. But but when you look at the activism that you know the, the book you know begins in the even colonial period when when this community is being is forming and it doesn't end until the early 20th century I and mean, the the streetcars of New Orleans and Charleston are not resegregated until the early 20th century the police departments are not fully resegregated are not all white again until the early 20th century and these communities are are fighting the whole way I mean you think of a case like Plessy versus Ferguson that that test case incident is 1892. The Supreme Court makes this terrible decision, 1896. That's 20 years after we think, oh, Reconstruction ended and, and all of this activism had been defeated. Uh, and then yeah. you have, um, the book ends with a, a kind of tongue in cheek, kind of almost like performance art on the streetcars of Charleston, where uh, what, what is known in, in local Charleston lingo as a, a white Negro and a black Negro, meaning two people who are categorized as being colored people, but have different skin, skin tones, uh, two teenage girls board together and then sit right in the middle of the streetcar where it's in that kind of unclear whether it's the white section or the colored section and, and you know, wait until the white passengers get so angry that the um, streetcar driver has to intercede and then the two girls who are, have totally different skin colors get up and walk to the very back row and sit down in the colored section as a silent protest of, of the racial system and also just a very in-your-face, literally, way of pointing out how absurd it is. Right. I mean, this is in the 19-teens this is happening. Um, I got that story from a memoir uh, written by a woman named Mammy Field, and it's with her... Uh, her granddaughter, um, her granddaughters are Karen and Barbara Fields. They're the ones who got this book, you know, her her story from the early 20th century into publication. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the Field sisters are the the authors of Racecraft, probably the most one of the most interesting um, critical race theory books out there right now uh, about social construction of race. Um, so, you know, in this sense, this this community in Charleston, which doesn't have the same uh, it's it's not as openly kind of a community as the Creoles Creole community in New Orleans. It's a little more kind of underground or or less formalized. Um, but even to this day, um, you know, through these through the Barbara and Karen Fields, still fighting uh, this same the same fight that you know either America wins or or either we win it or America loses. I mean, it's still the most crucial fight in right. our country. Right, right. Well, it is absurd. You know, it's surreal. This whole you know, it's it's a it's an absurd um, kind of uh, situation. And black people have always known that, 
Um, and also I was thinking what happened, you know, they fought against this, this, this reversal of their rights or their, or their way of life. It was almost like what happened, there's a parallel to what happened to the Jews in Nazi Germany, you know. Suddenly they went from being people with rights and, you know, right to own property and this and that. Suddenly they, you had to go, you know, they were, they were, they were, became vermin basically. I mean, it was very dramatic in the case of Nazi Germany, but was, that's kind of like, uh, that was a similar energy here. Um, and, and there's, a, there's a parallel um, kind of creation uh, sort of resorting out, retroactive sorting out of who's Jewish and who's quote unquote German. Right. Um, I mean, the Jews wow. in Germany had been liberated under during the Napoleonic Wars in the early 1800s and had been intermarrying with German non-Jews for over a century. Right. But then all of a sudden, oh no, no, actually you're different races. And then the complicated sorting out process has to take place um, yeah. as, a, as a prelude to- I'm to sure a lot, of Jews, a lot of Jews passed as non-Jews, right? To avoid- <laughs> Of course. To avoid uh, a persecution. So, there's, and I just a side note. So, um, um, I, I learned this recently when when Nazi Germany was forming in the 30s, or you actually studied the American apartheid system, and one of the people on the committee said, "Oh, that's too extreme. We can't do that here. That is just you know beyond beyond yeah, the, 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 the one drop rule. The one drop rule terrified them because who yeah. it, you know by the by the 1930s in Germany, who who among the German population didn't have one drop." Exactly. Very similar, very similar to what's going on in colonial Charleston, I think, where strangely enough, in this kind of ultra racist society, there's no law against interracial marriage in colonial South Carolina. And um, I think that's that's because they don't the, the, the ostensibly white elite who are passing these laws don't want to go back and, and search, you know, well, who married who in Barbados before we we showed up in Charleston in 1658. They didn't want to look at that. They didn't want to know. No, no, you don't, you don't want to open that door. But, you know, it's been open because people, we, we have a lot of technology. We have DNA, you know, uh, tests that, would, that, of course, would show everybody is mixed. But, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, the problem now is we, we've living, been living with the binary so long that, uh, you know, how do you break it down? And, and, and I'm actually suspicious of people who say, hey, there's no color. Those, because because the motive is not right. The motive is, I don't want to deal with color. I don't want mm -hmm. to deal with the history of racism. So let's just not look at anything. So I've always been suspicious of that approach, the colorblind um, um, kind of, you know, uh, stance, which doesn't, doesn't really, not getting any truth. It's just putting things aside. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's still quite surreal and, um, um, I don't know, open as to what, you know, as, as to how this country will resolve that thing of, we are either all, like Martin Luther King said, you're all slave or all free. That's really the fundamental mm -hmm. question. You're all slave or all free, um, but you can't be, you just can't be uh, both at the same time. You know? Yeah, the very, the very last thing I added to the book before the finishing touch was a James Baldwin quote that I, that I came across, um, actually in the price of the ticket, um, which is the name of one of his books, but also uh, a documentary, which I'd, I'd really recommend people uh, wa watch. And the quote is, it's up to you. As long as you think you're white, there's no hope for you. As long as you think you're white, I'm gonna be forced to think I'm black. So I think what James Baldwin is saying there is that is two things. We do need to see how race was socially constructed and sort of see through race. 
at the same time, the ball is in the court of white identified Americans to take the first step. You can't, you can't, as a, as a white identified American, you can't put that, the onus on African Americans to say, oh, well, that was all a big misunderstanding. Now let's just move on. It's, it's on white Americans to make that first step and retrace kind of all of the wrong, all the wrong steps. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, when you realize you're, you've gone down a, a dark road in the woods for three miles, you don't just gun it in reverse. <laughs> You'll kill right. yourself. You right. very carefully, what, you know, figure out where each wrong move was and undo it. And that's, I think that's where we need to start as a society. Hmm. That makes sense. You know, it's interesting now with people now, of course, you know, intermarriage is of course no longer against the law. There's a lot of, a lot of it. Um, and so I, what's interesting, I don't know, about 15 or 20 years ago, there was a big push amongst parents of mixed race kids, like black and white, to have to be some other category, to not be black. That didn't want, they didn't realize that that wasn't a good thing to be, but they wanted this other, they wanted this other uh, kind of category on, on, on the census, which, you know, um, it's kind of an old fight, but um, um, it, I, I wondered at the time, is it, too, is it too late to go back to that, to that fight, to that, you know, argument that we're all this, you know, we're all equal and, and, and there can be this middle group that's not black or white, but you know um, something else. And I realized, you know, that didn't even make sense to me. That's not how I've lived. That's not how I live in the world. But I, I wonder if that's the kind of stuff you're talking about, or are these just clueless white parents who, who kind of understand that they don't want the kid to be black because that's not really advantageous, and they're trying to create something brand new. You know, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't think you want to go down the, the, the route, you know, that they go in France where they just don't collect data based on race or ethnicity or religion. And then they pretend they don't have any problems because they don't have any data backing it up. Whereas, you know, you walk around a neighborhood in Paris and you, you see right. that like, there's obvious racial and religious discrimination. Um, but I think these these actual conversations, even if are important, I mean, However, we can think about the, the racial categories on the census. For example, it, it considers white people, you know, Europe, anyone with any of the original people of Europe, the Middle East or North Africa, which is a kind of, which is a, which is a, a kind of absurd categorization. If you talk to um, say in the era of the Trump Muslim ban to say that Algerians are white, even, you know, by some sort of categorization. Um, but I, it's not like we're going to eventually get the correct definition of white people. That's an absurd um, kind of 19th century quasi eugenicist flirtation with fascism, right? That there's mm -hmm. this real thing called a white person. We just have to figure out quite what it is. Um, so I think you want to be in that kind of uncomfortable space yeah. where you're both critical of the categories without denying how much power they have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The struggle for universal suffrage. Um, and the enforcement of, of, of that um, is something that you outlined brilliantly in your, in your book, Daniel, of course, with Dr. Du Bois as, as a guide, um, you know, his seminal study of, of Black Reconstruction. But if we look today, right now, um, November 2020, and we throw out the cities, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Atlanta. Atlanta. What is the common link here? And why is there such 
a struggle now uh, for enfranchisement or disenfranchisement. And it, it goes back to this moment in American history where black soldiers, runaway slaves joined together to free this nation, to unify this nation. The, the first shot on uh, Sumter was fired uh, by a New Orleanian, <laughs> right? And um, that civil war continues to this moment. And anyone I think who is interested in, in the roots of our current uh, dilemma must go to your book uh, to, to sort out why we're in the dilemma we are in today. Yes, I appreciate your book, Daniel, because it sorts out when people ask me sometimes, well, what are you, where are you from and how did you come about? It's hard to do that in two, cents, in two senses or less or three. I mean, it's a very complicated history, um, but you know, in regards to how we can, you know, how to categorize white, basically because you know, you can't have white without, as, as James Baldwin said, you can't, you know, there's no, uh, there are no Negroes in the world except in this country. We created, you know, we created the Negro, you know, only, only exists here. And in terms of suffrage, like Roger was saying, getting back to the beginning of your book, when, you know, those two men went to ask for voting rights, basically, the logic was if you couldn't vote, you were black. So whoever you were, if you're, that's, you know, if you're a person who couldn't vote, you're black. If you could vote, you're white. So the the definitions were political, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's like, I think Dick Gregory said, everybody got a chance to be a Negro in this country. Um, they, most of them graduated out of it, but some of them didn't. And people like Middle Easterners kind of go, they fall back, they fall back into the bottom caste when things get rough, right? Um, uh, the Asian people, same thing. But that, that, that categorization that, that, you know, the black people, the ones who don't have anything, that's a very, you know, it's a, it goes right along with the color. Because mm. this country, it's all about value and property and, and, and who gets what. So if you're white, you're entitled to a lot to things that the country didn't want everybody entitled to. So that's still a very, a, particularly the vote. And that is still a very live, very live issue. So, um, you know, I, I just hope people see it clearly what's happening right now. It is right. so blatant. I, I, you know, as a lot of black folks say, I'm on a way, I'm glad it's happening so blatantly and so, and so mm -hmm. out of, out in the open. I do hope it, I do hope it wakes people up. I'm not sure it will, but it's very clear to see the dynamic, you know, that has never, you know, kind of went, you know, kind of went underground sort of, but now it is absolutely not. And um, once again, we are not ashamed of it, uh, of this division and this, this, I mean, I'm ashamed of it, but I don't matter. But um, so hopefully people will see this and will hit them and they will say, uh, we need to change this. Um, this is a great uh, profile and courage uh, mm -hmm. as well. There are people who put their lives on the line. Denmark Vesey, let's go back to 1822 in Charleston. He was an enslaved African man in Charleston who won the lottery. 
he hit the lottery. And instead of spending his, his money uh, frivolously, uh, he purchased his own freedom. And then he set out to get a whole bunch of other people free. And he planned what would have been the biggest slave insurrection in American history in 1822. He was betrayed. He was hanged with 38 of his co-conspirators. He had built um, what is uh, still the Mother Emanuel uh, Church. Uh, that church was burned in the wake of the, uh, of the attempted insurrection. It was then rebuilt by his son. The church was then destroyed again by an earthquake. And this of course was the church that was uh, invaded. Uh, by a young man who was welcomed into sanctuary for a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and nine people were slaughtered right there on John C. Calhoun Street, mm. within view of Fort Sumter, where that first shot of the Civil War was fired, where it started and tragically has never ended. Wow. So what you're writing about uh, Daniel is, is is not simply a history or an exercise in nostalgia, but rather uh, an essential uh, examination of where we are currently as a nation mm -hmm. and um, where we have been and how we got here and mm -hmm. possibly how we can get the hell out. Yeah, it's a story of both what, can be, what, what can be done and what can be undone. Yeah. When you think of something like the 15th Amendment to the Constitution guaranteeing African-American suffrage, um, more or less quasi-overturned by the Supreme Court um, yeah. in, the, in the 1870s, which rules that you can disenfranchise people for any other reason than race, which can, of course, be used to overlap with race very easily. Um, and we're still, you know, that's, that's what's being litigated right now. That's, that's what's being litigated right now yeah. in Milwaukee and Detroit and Philadelphia. Um, so I, you know, I, don't, I don't want people to come away from the book feeling hopeless. I want it almost to be the other, the other way. Um, you know, things move forward, there's progress and there's, and there's reaction. Um, and ultimately it's on us. I mean, no one's gonna save us but us. It, every generation, it's, it's on us to, to, push, to push the ball forward. There are always gonna be forces pushing it against pushing it back down the hill. Um, and I hope that's what people take away from this. Yeah, I would just say, you know, reading your book, uh, well, I always think truth and, you know, finding out truth and understanding history is inspiring um, and th therefore positive. But I really was struck by how heroic these people were, these, these people of color who fought and fought, and like you say, fought and fought and fought, insisted on making the argument that we deserve you know, we deserve what we've been getting. And, and by the way, everybody else deserves it too. I mean, it's, funda it's, it's, it's fundamental American heroism, isn't it? Far more than, you know, I mean, it's kind of essential um, heroism. And I also learned, I mean, I knew what the Klan was. The Klan actually formed out of this, you know, it was a response to this effort in New Orleans and elsewhere to, to bring, to, to act, you know, just during reconstruction a time when, when actually things were going, you know, uh, things were progressing. Um, and there was this halcyon period of, of, of cooperation, you know, the integrated school system in New Orleans. Well, the Klan was a reaction to that. Um, 
you know, very, they didn't want that line. They didn't want, they didn't want that, that equality. And I really think today that there are many people who are, who resist that notion of equality. They, it's not something that they want to uh, achieve. They want to do something. They want to turn it back. Um, and, and willing to, to take violent action correct. to do so. That's Just correct. like the Klan. Yeah. And yet over and over, over, they claim, they claim that they say they are reclaiming the American way of life. And, and in the strict sense, that's not, that's true. The American way of life was to keep this very hard line. But that's not, you know, we that's not the America that um, I guess is the ideal, which is more important than the, than the reality. And that's the constant tension that's always mm -hmm. been there. there. Many people are fine with that original reality, that separation, that's in their mind, that's how things are supposed to be. And, you know, we have a long history of things being that way, but at the same time, there's always been resistance to it and and chipping away at it chipping away at it and chipping away at it and um uh your book kind of really shows that you know getting down to like you know like losing that last five pounds right you got to get we you got to get very subtle and it gets but it's very real and um um it's you know we're still asking that question of inclusion you know are 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 don't we all don't black people matter um, and it's kind of amazing. We're still asking that very fundamental question, but we that. are. I love that formulation as a way to sort of anchor us for the, that idea of attention between the ideal and the reality. And yeah. I love how this conversation has spanned past and past and present. Um, thank you all so much for joining us today. Uh, Daniel Brooke, Roger Gender Smith, Aaron Aubrey Kaplan, Truly a, a gift to have you all here with us. Um, the book is The Accident of Color and the paperback comes out uh, on Tuesday, the 24th of November, just in time for Thanksgiving to reflect about all the paradoxes and tensions and challenges and maybe a little bit of hope in our, in our nation's history. Um, thank you all so much for being here. Come see us at Skylight Books and pick up your copy this week. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.